You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. We've been giving periodic updates on the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, here on the podcast. Uh, As we've talked about, the negotiations have been conducted in extreme secrecy, uh, even by the standard of trade negotiations. Uh, So we've only been able to speculate on what has been in the text. Our speculation has been that uh, some of the most extreme proposals from the failed Trans-Pacific Partnership would get into a new NAFTA. Um, Just last week, there was a leak in the text that confirmed our suspicions and gave us even more cause for worry. Uh, so joining me today to give an update on where NAFTA renegotiations are is Sharon Treat, a senior attorney at IATP, who's been following the negotiation very closely. Um, Sharon, let's start uh, with the basic overview. What in the last two months has happened in the renegotiation um, since the last time we gave an update? Um, yeah, thank you, Josh. Glad to um, be on the show. Um, we, we don't know for sure, and this is uh, really echoing what you just said about the secrecy of the negotiations. We do know that there have been a couple of rounds um, of negotiations, formal negotiations, uh, both in Mexico and uh, in Canada. Uh, and there's been reports coming out of those negotiations that some of the areas, the so-called non-controversial areas, uh, have been decided upon that there there may be as many as seven different chapters that have been agreed to by Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. Now, when I say non-controversial, that means non-controversial from the point of view of um, corporations who are the ones that are normally reporting on this. However, much of what may have been decided could be extremely controversial from our point of view because the subjects that have been mentioned include um, the biotech regulations, which were, uh, I know there was a lot of pressure to basically make it easier to import um, GMO foods and to um, agree to uh, um, having those on the market. And that's one of the big asks of industry. Another area that is possible that, has been agreed to is on food safety, where in the TPP, there was a great deal in there about um, making it uh, less um, possible to do additional inspections uh, at the border and to make sure that, um, you know, food coming in from another country was in fact what it said it was and was in fact um, safe. And then some of the other areas have to do with kind of behind the scenes regulatory cooperation, regulatory harmonization, which again is quite controversial from our point of view because it sort of adds to um, this sort of secret process of developing uh, the standards and protective um, rules that we have, and instead of doing it out in the light of day, having corporations and uh, regulators getting together, you know, on a regular basis, kind of um, more privately, to try to harmonize regulations between the three countries. And generally, when you hear harmonization, it means that it goes down to the lowest uh, common denominator and weakens those standards. So those are things that might have been agreed to. Um, we don't really know because we don't have any text we can look at. Uh, and then there's been a lot of controversy about some of the um, proposed reforms, which would actually make this agreement better relating to whether or not um, the investor state dispute settlement mechanism, which provides corporations a way to basically go around um, the court system and use their own corporate arbitration system and challenge uh, protective standards uh, and, and public policy uh, adopted by you know, countries and um, states and the state 
in, in this country. Um, and we don't know what's happened with that, but that has been an area where there was a p potential that there was improvement. Uh, right now, uh, there was supposed to be an eighth round of negotiations taking place in the Washington, D.C. area next week. And then at the very last minute, uh, the U.S. Trade Representative said that that had been canceled and they were just going to have um, sort of uh, high-level discussions, and, um, but looking towards having some kind of agreement in principle uh, by the end of the week. So... We don't really know, and again, uh, an agreement in principle, um, no one has outlined that for the public to have any opportunity to know what's in it and whether it is something we would support. So there was a piece of the text that was leaked last week in the New York Times that showed that the U.S. Um, was actually, uh, their proposal was to ban labeling of junk food essentially as junk food. So when we talk about some of the worst aspects of the TPP, this kind of goes beyond that. Talk a bit about what that proposal actually was and what its effects would have been. Yeah, well, this is the, the only um, proposal that we've seen that, well, and to be honest, we haven't seen it. I mean, this is something that was leaked to the New York Times. And so they reported on it and they quoted from it. Um, one of the quotes that they said was that this proposal would prevent any warning symbol, uh, shape or color that quote, inappropriately denotes that a hazard exists from consumption of the food or non-alcoholic beverage. Uh, this is a big um, issue. Uh, people are probably quite aware of the fact not only is it difficult to lose weight if you're overweight, and we all pretty much are, uh, but it's a worldwide crisis actually right now, obesity. And the U.S. is up near the 40% level in terms of the number of people that are obese or overweight. And Mexico is right behind us, and Canada is in the top five or ten countries in the world as well. So this, is, uh, pr this proposal uh, actually appears to have come directly from the industry, the prepackaged food industry, or we might say the junk food industry, which wanted to prevent um, countries from adopting these more effective labels. We've all seen these labels at the back of the package, which have lots of writing on them and on all these percentages and and you sort of can spend quite a bit of time puzzling out whether this is good for you or not good for you. Front of label packaging is designed to alert you right away if something that you're picking up off the grocery shelf is very high in, say, salt or calories or fat or sugar. And it gets your attention. And this is what the industry doesn't want. And they've been fighting it uh, every way they can. And apparently, uh, we're trying to put something into NAFTA. And this is something that was not uh, in the Trans-Pacific Partnership when it became public. So we talk a lot about um, you know, how, how trade agreements aren't really about trade. Um, and what the, you know, the other side will say is, well, we're focusing on eliminating non-tariff barriers to trade. Um, which is a pretty vague term and really could mean just about any law. Um, can you just unpack that a little bit more of why they feel like they have any sort of standing to be inserting this stuff into a trade agreement to begin with? Well, I mean, I, you know, be, because they can, <laughs> you know, because, because that's who's really driving these agreements. And, and it really did start with NAFTA. I mean, before NAFTA, you, the U.S., 
um, had trade agreements that are all about tariffs. Now we've been hearing a lot about tariffs um, and tariffs, you know, are, are one piece of uh, what is part of the existing NAFTA. But then there's these other chapters, like 25 to 30 other chapters that are really about changing domestic policies in ways to make it less burdensome, less expensive on um, businesses. And what they consider a um, non-tariff barrier, a barrier to trade, we would consider public policy that has a lot of uh, good reasons to adopt it, whether that's a food labeling provision, such as I've been talking about on nutrition, whether you know it's about preventing um, pesticides from getting into water bodies, you know, whether it's you know inspecting food and making sure that there's enough inspectors in a plant to actually see whether or not the meat coming through at a very fast pace is uh, safe to eat. These are all protective um, provisions which on the corporate side, they look at this and they say, this is preventing us from doing what we want, which is making as much money as possible without having to deal with these pesky regulations. And so they have um, used trade agreements to um, try to go after these regulations by putting rules into trade agreements, which actually make it much more difficult for governments to adopt these kinds of regulations. Part of what is in these uh, agreements and certainly part of what is these companies are trying to get put into the new NAFTA is uh, language that would say, well, until you try a voluntary standard first and it um, is shown to fail, then you can't uh, go and do something mandatory. It's a way of really putting the burden of proof on the government in, in a much um, stronger way uh, and forcing the justification of these policies and really delaying uh, their ever going into effect. Um, and then of course, uh, under these trade agreements, there are ways to challenge policies. So you, you both delay or, or weaken the policies at the front end and then after they're adopted, uh, they can be challenged either um, by the other countries that are part of the agreement or potentially um, by corporations themselves through this investor state dispute settlement mechanism. So just to kind of give a, an example of that, if I'm the, the Mondelez group, which owns Nabisco and makes Oreos and Chips Ahoy and that kind of thing, um, I, and I have operations in the United States and in Mexico, if I want to change the regulations in Mexico, I would then lobby U.S. negotiators to make such a proposal so that then I would be able to uh, avoid uh, regulations that might be happening in Mexico or in Canada or whatever. So the, the fact that these corporations are global uh, means that they can kind of get governments around the world to uh, whichever one is the most sympathetic to make a proposal like the U.S. made in NAFTA. Is that basically right? Yeah, that's that's basically right. And then those same companies could potentially challenge um, the regulations that go forward uh, in the future and say, well, these didn't meet the, the, the exacting standards that are part of NAFTA. You didn't go through these steps. You didn't, the science isn't good enough. And of course, you know, when you adopt regulation uh, right now, 
say in the United States, you have to go through many, many steps and have, you know, you have a proposed rule and then you have to show all the evidence and all the studies that were done that would show, say, for example, that um, these kind of warning labels actually are effective. You have to do that anyway. It's a lengthy process. So the idea here is these companies can come in and make it even more difficult to get these kinds of um, protective standards passed. Uh, and then if they don't like what gets done, then they can use the rules that are in the trade agreement and the trade agreement dispute process, which is not the same as our court system, to try to overturn those rules or to exact um, uh, damages, you know, and, and get the countries that had adopted those rules to pay potentially many millions of dollars in damages that these companies say they lost because their products couldn't be sold because of these labels. Mm -hmm. And so I want to dig into labeling a little bit more because it's not just been an issue in um, multilateral and bilateral negotiations, but at the WTO as well. Um, the, there have been rulings on plain packaging for tobacco products, um, for country of origin labeling for uh, meat, for example. And let's, let's start with uh, the uh, country of origin labeling or cool first. Um, we have polling in the U.S. that shows the, the margin of people who want to know or have it be required uh, that they are able to know uh, what country their meat came from is it's something like an 86% margin of people who support that versus uh, are okay with it being the way that it is. And the World Trade Organization actually uh, essentially said that knowing where your meat comes from is a barrier to trade. Can you explain what is the rationale behind how knowledge like that is a barrier to trade? Well, in that case, you had these companies that were based in Mexico and in Canada, although many of them are the same companies that are also based in the U.S., because as you said, they're, you know, multinational companies, mm -hmm. didn't want to have to comply with this because what they're doing is maybe raising, you know, a beef in one country, processing it in another, slaughtering it in another, selling it back across the border. And they didn't really want people to know that um, because, maybe people would want to buy the beef that was grown right around the corner uh, in, in their own state, for example, because they know where it comes from and they know how um, well it's processed. So they wanted to get out of this. They spent a lot of money actually lobbying Congress to, to repeal um, the coal um, standards, weren't completely successful. And so then went to the World Trade Organization and said, you know, this is really complicated. It's a burden on um, Canada and Mexico because we have to, you know, track where the meat is coming from. Now, by the way, in the European Union, they have to track where meat is coming from uh, and what farm it was grown on, and that's part of their food safety laws. So it can be done, it is done, and in this case, it wasn't done to prevent Canada and Mexico from selling their uh, meats in the United States. It would have applied to the United States as well. Um, it was, you know, across the board, but the WTO said, well, this is a burden on trade. It's discriminatory against um, Canada and Mexico. Now, our Congress could have actually revised these rules to make them perhaps um, acceptable to the WTO. It did not do that. It just repealed the whole thing. Uh, and so, actually, one of the um, asks from IETP and from um, the uh, National Farmers Union and RCAF, which is a cattlemen's association, 
was to the U.S. Trade Representative to say, you know, if you're going to improve NAFTA, why not put in provisions that provide for um, country of origin labeling and do it in a way that is perhaps acceptable to the WTO and have negotiations with Canada and Mexico about doing this in a way that they would agree to. But that is not the direction that this uh, NAFTA agreement is going in. It's going in the opposite direction. And I think the thing to point out, um, just to link back to this leaked um, text that has to do with um, nutrition labeling, is that clearly these industry groups didn't think that the WTO rules, which are you know, pretty restrictive to begin with, are restrictive enough. And so some countries were managing to, to actually uh, continue to have some kind of labeling. For example, the country of Chile and also Ecuador both have um, front of packaging labeling. Um, these were challenged, uh, at least informally, before the WTO. Uh, and um, those countries continue to do uh, their labeling uh, proposals. So now you have the industry saying, well, we need to do quote WTO plus and have even stronger rules. And we're gonna start by sticking those new rules into the NAFTA. And then of course, what tends to happen is if those you know, proposals made it into the final agreement, then that would become the template, the basic beginning point for every other trade agreement that the United States has in the future. So let's talk about the flip side, why, why labeling is important. Um, IATP published this paper uh, in 2012 called Exporting Obesity that showed how NAFTA was being uh, essentially used as a mechanism that was leading to a public health crisis in Mexico. But, uh, you know, just uh, from a more general sense, why, why is labeling of food, why is, is labeling in general uh, what's the what's the science behind that that shows that it improves public health outcomes? Well, I mean, the science is that, and they've done studies when people go to the grocery store, they pick up a package and they see a symbol that perhaps has a red sign that says high in fat, that they understand that. And that they then sometimes pick something else that's low in fat. Uh, at the same time, you have companies that are manufacturing these products and they're like, we don't want to have high in fat on our, on our packaging. So they're like, maybe we could make this product with less fat so it doesn't get that warning label on the front. And so it kind of works in two ways. You, you alter consumer behavior, but you also you know, alter the behavior of the manufacturers who, in fact, could be making many of these products less sweet and sugary and fatty and, and all of that. Um, so, so they are in fact um, effective uh, in, in achieving that. And that's, you know, and just going back to the country of origin labeling, uh, I just wanted to echo kind of what you were saying about consumer preference. I, I serve on a um, trade commission in the state of Maine where we had a hearing um, looking at the issue of um, chicken being imported into the United States from China where it's being processed and it's without any kind of labeling to say that that's um, where it's coming from. And we heard from the Maine Farm Bureau, which we don't have a lot. This is um, pork and chicken. We don't have a lot of those farms anymore, but the ones we have are all about buying local and people knowing who their farmer is. Um, and, you know, the whole emphasis on local food for, for places like where I live, where it's not industrial agriculture, but it's these smaller family farms, this is what is going to keep family farms going is that people want to, you know, because it's, it costs more 
to, to buy uh, this locally grown uh, meats because uh, it's got higher inputs. It's, you know, a smaller operation. They're not getting the huge subsidies that the Farm Bill has. And so it, it is part of um, really achieving sustainable agriculture, uh, you know, in this country. And if we're ever going to move more in that direction and less uh, in the direction of just continuing to industrialize every aspect of agriculture, then labeling is a really important component of that strategy. Um, and let's talk about one more uh, WTO case, which was the plain packaging for cigarettes. Um, the, so what we've seen is that the tobacco industry has been, um, I guess with sort of mixed effect, really been trying to use uh, trade policy to combat regulations around the world. Um, mostly, I, I would say, because we have a bunch of U.S. tobacco farmers in the South and we have effectively com uh, implemented uh, labeling and some other things in the U.S. that slowed down smoking rates. So the, the tobacco industry, for example, really sees exports as their major growth opportunity in the future. What are they doing as far as trying to prevent some of these labeling uh, requirements and what kind of successes have they had? Well, that's true. The, the successes have related to the so-called plain packaging, which Maybe a bit of a misnomer because some of these the packaging what we're talking about are regulations such as in um, the country of Australia that put pictures on uh, tobacco products that actually showed what your lungs look like if you smoke a lot, okay, or actually show what someone uh, looks like who has throat cancer, and um, they they are not conducive to people picking up the packet <laughs> and saying, yes, I really want to buy this, you know, and it, it's quite effective. So the industry has fought for many, many years against this and, and threatening cases, both um, investor um, state dispute settlement, corporate um, arbitration cases, as well as before the WTO. Um, and, and the um, Australian case was really a poster child for that. As that proceeded through um, a series of hearings and, and through actually many years, uh, and it, generally these cases are not in public forums. So, you know, they're just happening. But during that whole time, you had a number of countries, including actually Canada was one of them that held back and did not do this kind of labeling for a period of many, many years. And we've been fighting uh, to get this uh, tobacco exempted out of trade agreements so that it couldn't be used, um, you know, the trade agreements couldn't be used to challenge this kind of public health um, policy. And that's still somewhat a policy up in the air, um, although the most recent decision was a positive one towards Australia, but it was many years before we had that decision. And as I said, during that time, the companies were successful in essentially preventing uh, almost any other country from even attempting it because the cost of defending these policies is extreme. And then if you lose the case, you could be out millions, if not billions of dollars uh, in, in damages. And one of the reasons it's important to spend uh, time thinking and doing this work on labeling, I think, is because it really goes to show how trade policy, world trade policy, um, contradicts a lot of the goals that countries have for their own development um, through other international bodies, right? So, for example, we saw in the Trans-Pacific Partnership 
um, how the pharmaceutical chapters uh, were going to completely undermine the Obama administration's goals through the World Health Organization of um, combating uh, disease in Southeast Asia. You were taking from one hand while you were giving with the other. You know, I, I just want to maybe talk about it as much as you can about how trade policy contradicts all of these other more laudable international goals that not just the U.S., especially right now, um, but that the world has for just kind of making it a better place. Yeah, no, that's right. And it, it, it seems like the, these um, initiatives, as well as actually treaties coming out of, say, the World Health Organization, don't seem to be particularly enforceable, whereas these trade agreements are. If it's something in, in a treaty that is about promoting a, a corporation from being able to sell anything it wants at any price, in any design it has, that's enforceable. And that's what we've just been talking about. But if it's the World Health Organization's um, framework convention on tobacco, which is about, which was a, a treaty that was adopted by most of the countries in the world, but the U.S. I believe may not have signed on, um, that is not really enforceable. And when it comes up against the um, a treaty that is very specific on a trade agreement that's very specific, uh, it doesn't seem to influence the outcome necessarily. We can go, we were talking about the obesity issue. I mean, again, this is where the World Health Organization has done many studies. I was just looking at a study that came out within 2016 on childhood obesity. They specifically endorse, among other strategies, as part of a larger strategy, the front of package uh, warning labels on junk food and talk at length about that. And yet we have um, these uh, trade agreements putting in language that just would obliterate that and make it impossible for countries to comply with that. Um, certainly the prescription drug proposal that you mentioned, again, in the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, there was extensive language that would make it hard both to set prices for public programs and uh, that would delay uh, drugs from moving from the monopoly status to be able to be the cheaper generics, particularly the newer drugs. Uh, sort of more designer um, biomedical uh, pharmaceuticals that are being developed now. So that goes directly against, uh, you know, the public health goals of, of the, the UN and the World Health Organization uh, and it really undermines, you know, the world being a, a, a healthier um, place for everybody. And so you're absolutely right. And I guess it comes down to who has the power. And when we look at our own country and who is really driving these trade agreements and who's sitting at the tables and have preferred access to the negotiators, it largely is, you know, over 400 or 500 um, corporate advisors and the, the very large, you know, multinational, transnational corporations that they represent that really aren't U.S. companies anymore. They're not, you know, Mexican or Canadian or anything. I mean, these are companies that uh, one or two companies will control the entire um, world market pretty much, whether it's for beef or for, you know, certain junk foods or, um, you, know, you know, and so they have tremendous power. You know, you had talked about that the investor state dispute settlement mechanism might go away. Um, we don't know yet, but it's definitely a, a real possibility. However, the uh, chapters that have been rumored to be closed 
seem like they're possibly far worse than what was in the original NAFTA. You know, this is, seems like a really awful choice that we have to make um, in terms of do, is this something that's better than NAFTA or is it something that's actually worse? And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. How stark is that choice going to be? And if the investor state dispute settlement mechanism gets changed, is there an opportunity for uh, better regulation despite the fact that there's more deregu deregulatory language that we've heard of that might be in the text? Well, of course, that's going to be very difficult. We don't really know what we're going to end up with. So it's really speculating. I mean, even if we got what U.S. Trade Representative Lighthizer is proposing on the ISDS, that is an opt-in and an opt-out, which would allow the U.S. to opt out now, but then go back to having ISDS in the future. I'm not so comfortable with that. Um, that's different from ISDS going away, mm -hmm. uh, as you put it. If ISDS goes away uh, and is not in um, NAFTA at all, I think that would be you know, something worth thinking about. Nonetheless, a lot of what we've been talking about is about how it influences governments' uh, decisions about what they regulate and how they regulate in a way that's kind of behind the scenes and sort of becomes part of the culture. So if, in fact, these really difficult rules become part of a trade agreement, I think we have to think carefully about whether that is worth a trade-off with, let's say, if there was no ISDS. I, I would still be quite concerned about this agreement. I think that we shouldn't put any, be putting this stuff into a trade agreement to begin with. And the idea that we would be adopting provisions that were uniformly rejected by civil society as well as President Trump supposedly in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and we just slide them into NAFTA and then make them even more friendly to corporations in a trade agreement that, you know, is very difficult to renegotiate as we're seeing right now and will likely be there for, for decades to come, uh, I, I think is very concerning. And, and particularly some of the newer provisions that were first raised in the Trans-Pacific Partnership and also were a big, um, were strongly supported by Canada, which have to do with this kind of behind the scenes regulatory cooperation and harmonization. That could proceed, you know, uh, with or without ISDS and essentially influence these countries to pretty much dumb down their regulations to make them um, all the same in a way, in a, in a forum where basically industry predominates and it's not really very much in the public eye and it's really done before um, the regulations go through the notice and comment sort of public um, process. And I think that's quite dangerous to be uh, increasing the amount of secrecy that goes on in our democratic process and making it far less democratic than it is today and really uh, ramping up the power of the the very corporate actors who are, in my view, too powerful already. And it's I think it's already an inaccessible system for the general public to, to participate in. And even for organizations such as IATP, just don't have the resources to participate in the same way as these, you know, kind of mega corporations. So, you know, it's it's could be a mixed bag. We'll have to look at it really carefully. You know, I just hope that if there is uh, some agreement, you know, it isn't considered so speedily that we really don't have time to understand what's in these 30 chapters that aren't the chapters that are being discussed publicly. 
Yeah, I mean, it, we've been we've been talking a lot about how NAFTA is being negotiated so recklessly right now, and it seems like there's, you know, definitely been uh, no let up in the recklessness. Um, to close up, so what are you in the next couple of months or in the next couple of weeks, even? What are you going to be looking for to come out of you know the very secret negotiations as much as anything comes, like anything tangible actually comes out? Um, but then also, you know. What kind of limited things can we do to be um, uh, making our, our points known and doing um, advocacy around NAFTA from maybe a more public standpoint? Well, I think one place to start if people want to know what's in NAFTA is just to go to all the analysis that was done on the now public Trans-Pacific Partnership because I think you could be pretty much assured that most of that, that certainly is where the industry asked for the U.S. trade representative to start from. Uh, and I think that, you know, if you, you read the public statements that have been made in the areas where they said there's been agreement, many of those statements say, well, we've agreed to the TPP plus a few other things. So that would be one place to understand what's happening. The people that really can make or break this agreement are the members of Congress. They do get to vote for or against this. They don't get to change it, but they get to for, vote for it or against it. So I think that people should be calling their members of Congress and asking for a few things. Demanding more transparency and consultation up front before it gets sent to them on a timetable for an up or down vote. Demanding that they find out what's in it. What's going on with financial regulations? You know, no one's talking about that. You know, what's going on with, with biotech? Uh, people aren't talking about that. Um, what's the details here? Um, and demanding that their members of Congress not accept something that has these sort of extreme provisions in it that are going to restrict what future members of Congress can ever do uh, in terms of protecting environment, in terms of ensuring safe food, in terms of you know, addressing public health issues like obesity and, and uh, you know, addiction to tobacco. Well, Sharon, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. Okay, great to be with you. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more information on what you've heard today, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. You can read Sharon's uh, fairly lengthy blog on uh, labeling. Uh, you can also download this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please give us a positive rating. I also want to thank Andrew Risso for editing the podcast today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.